Patrick Brady. This is Club Hell. Thanks for coming, kids. Hey. Hello. This is Notes from the Back Row. A cinema podcast of commentary, questions, answers, dreams, fears, joy rides, hell rides, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the Mind. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Notes from the Back Row. This is Dan Gorman, your projectionist, just for this short moment at the beginning. If you would like to email us or find us on social media, you can do so by mailing us at backrowcineblog at gmail.com, or you can go to backrowcineblog on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and more. You can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Spotify, Obviously, leave us reviews if you like the show. Let us know what you think. But for now, this episode is about women in film, and I'm going to get completely out of the way and let the segments speak for themselves. So you're going to hear from Jenna and Veronica first, and then Carlo and I will do our bits at the end. So enjoy the episode. It can seem like most everything on television and in cinemas nowadays is focused on this concept of the anti-hero, which has its time and its place. But the thing that bugs me the most about anti-hero stuff is how audiences seem to just always be tricked into thinking the main character somehow deserves the benefit of the doubt. By showcasing this complex character in the spotlight, people tend to automatically empathize with whatever their worst tendencies are. You know what I mean? Like, why would they be the main character otherwise? You gotta root for them, even if they're cold-blooded murderers, right? What? That's not legally binding? Oh. But sometimes the true heart of the script is actually the supporting cast. And it's really up to the director, in my opinion, to help steer the ship so as to highlight that dynamic. A great example of this is a film I recently had a chance to see at Quad Cinema, which is 1977's Between the Lines, starring John Hurd, Lindsay Krauss, and Jeff Goldblum. You have a story for me this week? Have I ever missed the deadline? Constantly. You've been picking up a paycheck for years, you don't do a damn thing. You don't think that's work? It's a lesser-known Joan Micklin Silver film, who you may recognize as the director of uh, Crossing Delancey or Hester Street or Chilly Scenes of Winter. Surprisingly not about cocaine, Between the Lines follows the last days of a small underground Boston newspaper called the Back Bay Main Line, uh, as it gets bought out by a corporate entity that mostly just wants to buy it so they can appear to be hip with the youth culture, but really they just want to bury it. So it's a movie about the end of an era, the downturn of the 70s evolving into that sort of capitalist orgy that we all knew as the 80s. Uh, but more than anything, it's really a loving character study of the death of a really great group dynamic. It walks that line between the bittersweet drama and really laugh out loud funny dialogue and situations. It reminded me of a, a spiritual sequel to Paul Mazursky's Next Stop Greenwich Village, which is a favorite of Back Row. And you should 100% check out if you have not seen. But for this one, uh, the film largely figures on John Hurd uh, as the chief investigative reporter in the heart of this uh, fringe newspaper. 
Though I will tell you straight up that Jeff Goldblum absolutely steals the show here, and I'm a little upset that I didn't see this movie in time for our first episode of Notes from the Back Row when we were just talking about all Goldblum all the time. Because let me tell you, this movie is prime Jeff Goldblum, and if that at all means anything to you, you should 100% get all up in this film. But anyhow, Heard stars as uh, Harry Lucas, and he plays an aimless talent who really can't overcome his insecurities. And we weave in and out of these sort of various stories between the employees of the Back Bay mainline uh, and the co-workers. Uh, but the real standouts in this ensemble cast are actually the, the few women characters that are uh, working in this office. See, Harry mostly just mopes about. He's scoffing at the establishment and he's unable to motivate himself due to his largely jaded outlook and also a good old-fashioned case of writer's block. Uh, he also spends a lot of time, though, sulking around uh, after his on-again, off-again girlfriend and co-worker, uh, Abby, played uh, expertly by Lindsay Krause. Uh, but Abby is exactly the opposite of Harry. She's out there living, doing, uh, you know, and making her own happiness. She's the newspaper photographer who uh, is, becomes revealed as far more talented than she gives herself credit for. And she gets called out on that uh, exactly point blank and asked why she doesn't show her photographs in a gallery or, or sort of aim for more than just working at this sort of no-name fringe newspaper. But uh, Abby demures, and, and she's perfectly happy, she says, doing what she's been doing. But it's fairly clear what's really happening if you read between the lines, <laughs> as it were. It's pretty obvious that she knows she's more talented or just as talented as the rest of them. But she doesn't want to fight an uphill battle her entire life in order to prove it continually, forever. <laughs> which is a universal struggle of artists, but it's also a predicament that is very live and well, unfortunately, for most women uh, trying to make strides in any predominantly male field. And uh, one of the best scenes in this film is when Harry and Abby go to a strip club in order to get the scoop on what it's like to be a stripper or something, uh, you know, some sort of essentially a sort of fluff, uh, you know, cool uh, article. <laughs> Well, uh, Abby's only there to take photographs of the women uh, sort of behind the scenes. She ends up actually striking up this really great conversation with one of the strippers who Harry's trying to interview. Uh, but she's asking these really interesting and probing questions of her as if she was, you know, a gasp, a human being. And, of course, Harry gets pissed. Like, he pulls her over in private and he chews her out because she's stepping on, you know, his territory. This is my story kind of stuff. And then when he finds himself sitting alone with this other woman, he realizes, oh, I have nothing insightful to ask her. Uh, and actually, everything that Abby was saying was far more interesting and far better uh, investigative reporting than he was doing, since all he came with were stupid questions about the stripper's uh, sex life, which she even says right before he's about to ask that question, like, oh, people always just come here and ask me dumb questions about my sex life. Uh but Harry can't really seem to let this go, even though he knows he's been bested. And later on in the night, he ends up laughing at Abby when she sort of dares to dip her tomboyish toe into this more feminine sphere of glamour makeup and risque sequin outfits. Uh, she lets this uh, woman uh, kind of dress her up a little bit in, in the back room. 
And uh, yeah, and then Harry just comes over and, and just embarrasses her. And she's rightfully livid, uh, you know, because he's not one to shame her, especially with their sexual history and his longing for them to get back together that she keeps sort of uh, keeping at arm's length. But it's clear that's just another way to bat her down after she's embarrassed him by outdoing him at both, uh, you know, her job and his. And it says so much about Harry. <laughs> You know, without this scene, you might just think like, oh, you know, this struggling genius, no one understands him. But then you see him out there, you know, actually interacting with people and screwing things up and not taking any uh, suggestion or help from anybody. And you realize, oh, this is who this guy is. You know, he isn't actually the the cool cat that uh, I might have thought he was uh, from his introduction. And then you have Laura, who's played by uh, Gwen Wells, and she's a reporter herself who is uh, smothered into silence by her cocky live-in boyfriend, a guy named Michael, who's a reporter uh, turned uh, book author about to be published. And Laura's constantly at odds with herself on whether or not she'll leave Michael. After all, I mean, she has an established career, she has friends, and she has a whole life in Boston, and he just wants her to up and move because his career is taking off. You know, just because he got this big break doesn't mean that she's ready to to throw everything away in order to follow him. And, you know, while Laura's story is a sad one, it's also another extremely recognizable story. Uh, you know, Abby's able to keep Harry at arm's length because while they have this um, romantic connection, she finds his depressive attitude to be too stifling to her own happiness. Whereas Laura has the opposite problem. Her ambitious boyfriend expects her to exist only to help prop him up. He can't stand to be uh, around her as she's a separate entity with wants and desires, but he can't seem to live without her either. The film really doesn't linger nearly as long on the woman in general uh, in the film as it does on the men in the film. But I can't help but think that without a woman director, their parts would have probably been even more dire. There's already a handful of instances where we get that sort of cliche 70s shit where all the women have to be topless for five seconds for no plot-driven reason. But uh, at least with a female director, she made John Hurd get stark naked. So we have a good long look at his butt, which is not too exciting, but I'll take what I can get with the equal opportunity nudity. But yeah, the men in the film dominate and they dismiss their female colleagues, which isn't to say that they're not portrayed with nuance and layers because they, they definitely are, both the men and the, and the women here. Um, but they're also portrayed as waffling in this void. And without these women around them to keep them uh, anchored, you really wouldn't have a, a true sense of, of these characters. And, and I don't know that they would have really a true sense of themselves either. It's hard to leave the film without thinking that the women were really the only ones who truly deserve a happy ending, which is something, you know, something bigger and better than what they end up settling for. But c'est la vie, that's sadly the story of a lot of women. So check it out, Between the Lines, 1977. It's really a laugh-out-loud funny, really hilarious, great group dynamic film. Uh, great acting all around. I loved it. It was awesome. A bit of a sidebar, but another film I watched recently, and I'll be quick... Uh, that similarly uses its female characters to show you how uh, fractured the main male character is, was uh, 1967's Charlie Bubbles, a film that was directed and stars uh, Albert Finney, but it was uh, written by Sheila Delaney, who is better known as the writer behind the famous play and movie A Taste of Honey, uh, which she wrote at 19. 
Um, but I'm not going to talk about this one because I actually already talked about it on Cinema 60, which is my other podcast. But don't tell Back Row I'm living my double life. Uh, but that podcast all about 1960s cinema. Uh, and episode six is going to be all about Albert Finney. So check that out on cinema-60.com. That's cinema-60.com. And uh, I adored that movie, and I think you should check it out if you're interested. And, uh, yeah, Between the Lines, 1977, Charlie Bubbles, 67. Well, that's that. We had some good times here, didn't we? We really shook things up. Everybody in the unemployment line. I had you going there for, for a second, didn't I? It should come as no surprise to anyone who pays attention to our site and or podcast that when it came to picking movies helmed by women, I naturally went for the horror, violent genre. After the recent controversy with Jason Blumhouse of Blumhouse Productions saying that they couldn't find any female directors to direct horror movies, it seemed pertinent to highlight some of the magnificent women uh, and movies out there that have really truly been viscerally disgusting or uh, intense and grotesque, not just scary, but barbaric. As much as I love The Babadook, and I, I did, uh, it's still a movie that sort of hinges on relationships and uh, a mother and a child and grief and emotion and it's psychological and it moves sort of slowly and that's beautiful and great. But I really wanted to focus on things that were repulsive and done by women because I think that uh, there's this idea that women can't really do gore can't really do, which is the funniest thing in the world, because we exist inside Cronenbergian nightmares. <laughs> Our bodies are terrifying, and we have to field fairly disgusting things on a, you know, regular basis. I think it all just comes from these gender roles of little girls being sugar and spice and everything nice, and we all know that that's bullshit because then somehow we grow up to be duplicitous evil women, right? So somewhere along the way, we have to go from sugar and spice to backstabbing femme fatales. Somewhere in there, we must love gore. We must be able to really click into that. I also wanted to highlight these because the remake of Pet Cemetery is coming out soon. And I'm probably going to go see it. Uh, most likely, at least. I enjoy a good amount of the Stephen King adaptations. I won't pretend they're all gold. Uh, I wasn't really that big of a fan of it outside of Little Billy Skarsgård, because and that he's all covered in clown makeup, which is perfect because he's got that like adorable weird little doll face but you know that was really the only part i liked about it but the original pet cemetery was directed by mary lambert i believe she directed uh the sequel as well but i would actually have to look into that so 
it's a movie that has a fairly iconic scene of someone getting their tendon sliced and it certainly is still effective and you know it's a, a movie that holds up pretty well there are things of course in it that are dated but as far as the violence and the horror and what it really manages to do with the source material is very very effective so on that note We'll get started with one of my favorites, and certainly not unknown movie, but a movie that sort of has to be talked about when we're discussing women directors and women working in the world of horror, American Psycho. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. Have any witnesses or fingerprints? Actually, yes. Hmm. You're inhuman. I know my uh, behavior can be erratic sometimes. Hey, Paul! Now, American Psycho has to be talked about because Mary Harron, who directed it, uh, first of all, was almost replaced by Oliver Stone. Christian Bale was almost replaced by Leonardo DiCaprio. There's all these things that was happening through it. Christian Bale and Mary, Mary Harron really enjoyed working together. She wanted him. He wanted her as a director. You know, so it was kind of one of these things where it, it worked out perfectly and it almost was a complete mess. Uh, and when it was released, Brett Easton Ellis, who wrote the book, had this whole big thing about how women just can't be good directors because film in itself is a male medium, the male gaze, and blah, 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 which is just a whole other rant all into itself that women aren't visual. We're not visual creatures. We don't get visually stimulated. That's something that I've had an issue with my entire life. I'm an incredibly visual person. I get incredibly visually stimulated. Uh, I've just recently read Piper Laurie's memoirs, and she talks, she kind of addresses this head on, where she's like, I was always told that women aren't aroused by visual stimuli, but I used to like, look at my naked husband walking around, you know, this fit gymnast or something. <laughs> he was an athlete. I'm, I'm sure he's gorgeous. But it's just funny that someone, we just hear that over and over and over again. You get told that from such a young age. And you always want to be, or at least I always wanted to be, like, well, maybe it's not so much that we don't get visually stimulated as that nobody makes stimuli for us. Everything is for the male gaze. People don't even bother. And then something like Magic Mike comes out, and it's sold out, and people are going crazy. You know, and it's this... We have these examples of women just being like, ah, this is what I want, and nobody paying attention. So, on that note, Mary Harron was being told that she didn't do a very good job. She didn't really capture... Now, I will be... Up front, right here, 
I don't really love Brett Easton Ellis's work. I have read a couple of his things. I've read American Psycho, and I think, in my personal opinion, that the movie of American Psycho far surpasses the book because it cleans it up isn't the right way, but it edits it. It's why I also a lot of times like the Stephen King adaptations because, good lord, there's just like so much. They just they there's a Patton Oswalt joke about. Like, men being, all your favorite movies are directed by men and edited by women, and the men just shoot, 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 they have all this footage, all this footage, and the women actually turn it into something coherent. And that is kind of how I feel about American Psycho, where you're reading through the book and going, like, this this is just shock value, this is just to be gross. You made this point, and now you've kind of drifted from it. Uh, okay, and the movie American Psycho has enough strangeness in it, not even, you know, just the violence and the gore. It has moments where you're not sure if this is really happening. It doesn't, it plays with the sort of idea of people being replaceable or interchangeable. Nobody, I genuinely think most of American Psycho happened and that, you know, the cosmic joke at the end is that he can't confess. He he can tell anybody he wants that he did these things, but people are just like, oh, no, I just had lunch with Paul Allen. What are you talking about? No, you just had lunch with another white guy in a suit. But at this point, you can't even tell the difference between them. You know, and there's someone being so, so trapped inside of who they are and not even being able to get in trouble for it. I think that is a much clearer point in the movie. It's kind of there in the book, but since it's written by this snarky, smarmy little man, it doesn't really come across as genuine. It has more of a... It's like someone not being in on, on the joke they're making. You know, we're all going like, right, <laughs> hey. It's also, we have the benefit of hindsight, something coming out. You know, American Psycho came out in 2000. The book was nine years before that, so now we are, you know, 30 years away from the book, and we're in a completely different time as far as the culture. So while he may not have meant it in the way it's being read, the movie does. The movie means it in the way it's being read. Mary Harron is a very, very gifted I will also say, Mary Heron is gay. I was about 13 when this movie came out and just madly in love with Christian Bale and couldn't believe that a gay woman still had, you know, such an eye for <laughs> framing such a beautiful man. Uh, but, you know, if you work in film, if you're someone who's visual... You know how to give give people the goods. So thank you again to Mary Harron for making one of my favorite movies of all time. Shifting from male murderers to female murderers, we have Trouble Every Day. Trouble Every Day came out in 2001. It's directed by Claire Dennis, who actually has a movie coming out soon that I'm very excited for, High Life. I think it looks great. Trouble Every Day 
it can be sort of read in a few different ways, but it does have this kind of metaphorical uh, idea of a female rage and female lust and being insatiable, insatiable in so many different ways. Basically, this couple goes to Paris for their honeymoon, and the man in the couple runs into this woman that he uh, knew prior to that and was kind of obsessed with, and this woman is just this sort of violent machine. She seduces and kills people. She is... She rips a guy's tongue out with her teeth, and uh, the man in the couple tries to protect her from herself, you know, locks her away, imprisons her, uh, which, that's where sort of, you know, this metaphor for being a woman in the world uh, comes from. There's a, a lot of excuses made for men about, you know, biologically they're inclined to do this, and just, oh, that's just, we have to give them an outlet for that, and this happens if we don't, give this to men and blah 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 and you don't get that as a woman it's kind of like that movie raw where you know this thing clicks on in in a young med student and then all of a sudden she can't control it and people really do love to think that women just have so much self-control that we can turn anything down it's just you know men who are also supposed to be smarter than us so i don't know i mean gender roles are weird you guys sometimes they don't make any sense but that's, you know, kind of part of it is that, you know, men apparently are these biologically driven animals who are also supposed to be smart and in control and, uh, you know, keep women under thumb. And then women are biologically driven to nest and have children and we want stability. And, and so I do really, really love these movies that kind of treat female sexuality First of all, in, I don't want to use the word negative, but I do almost mean that in, in something that it's, it's compulsive and it just cannot be contained and it explodes out of someone because you get told so often as a girl <laughs> up till, you know, from the time you're little up until you know, forever, I'm assuming, because I still hear it, that, you know, we have the ability to say no to things we have we just we can we can we can walk away from things we just don't have the same drive you know there's even sayings like a, a hard dick has no conscience and can you imagine the flip side if it was people were saying a wet vag has no conscience if we really were given this sort of leeway of just being able to do what we want because it's programmed into us. We can't avoid it. We can't get away from it. And that's what Trouble Every Day is about. And that is why I like it as much as I do. It also, it does have violence against women in it. It does uh, sort of have a, a nihilistic-ish ending in some weird ways, or at least I would say fatalistic more than you just kind of know that the wife probably knows what's going on and is just like this is it this is where i've landed huh uh, so it's a movie that you have sympathy for some characters but hate what they do and then you also have sympathy for some characters but think they need to do things for themselves like you 
can only have sympathy for a pathetic character for so long before you're like, well, fix it. <laughs> this is within your control. So it is a movie, much like Raw, it is a movie about control, and it is a movie uh, about what we what we decide is programmed into us, what is actually hardwired, and what is just you know, the product of the world we live in. And it's a very, very bloody and fun. <laughs> as soon as I said fun, I was like, oh boy, I think it's fun. It might not be fun. You might not think it's fun, but it's fun. Next up is one of my favorites from one of my favorite directors, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. No! You might as well just kill me, Vincent. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We give him a week, see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I don't want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. Three hours short for us to get home. Near Dark came out in 1987, and it was written... And directed by Catherine Bigelow, uh, and Eric Red as well was a, a co-writer. And it's a vampire movie. It's a vampire western. Uh, Lance Hendricks in it says that when it was first pitched to him, Bill Paxton came up to him and was like, "I, I read this script. I want you to be in it. It's, you know, a vampire western." And he's like, oh, "Get out of here!" It sounded like the worst thing he'd ever heard of. And then actually, it turns out to be quite good. Why it works especially is uh, it's, you know, it came out clearly before Twilight and before a lot of the more romanticized vampires, and it really treats vampires like monsters. You know, it still has the the suffering side of it. It has the characters who are not really in into the whole idea. It has the, the child, you know, the vampire who was turned as a child and is now stuck in that body and so it does still have uh, a little bit of dimension to the monsters but they are truly monsters and bill paxton's character is the wildest of them all and he has some amazing scenes but one of uh, probably the most famous scene i would say i actually saw this scene before i saw the movie is him just going nuts on a group of people in a bar and Sometimes the, you know, the vampires go back and forth from being sort of righteous in the people they kill and then just being awful. They rip apart everyone in this bar. Bill Paxton does it in a way where he's clearly having a good time, too. It's not even just like, all right, we got to eat. He's tormenting people. The bartender tries to shoot him, and he's, like, slowly moving towards them, crunching on the glass on the bar, you know, just really, really sadistic not not just survival enjoying what he's doing so of course you know it's Catherine Bigelow so it has great action scenes and it's you know uh, moves fairly quickly it's not a particularly long or super involved movie it has a, a climax um that you know, really features Bill Paxton, the side of Bill Paxton's head coming off, you know, and it's very, very bloody. And I would say that as far as gore goes, 
uh, it's probably on the lower end compared to the two others that have been discussed. But the two others are also movies that were, the gore in them was like notorious in some ways. Uh, American Psycho, when it came out, you know, there was all this discussion about it possibly being rated NC-17. Trouble Every Day is sort of, has been known for a while infamously uh, for a couple of scenes that, you know, the tongue ripping out one in particular, you know, so these, in Near Dark, the gore is more along the lines of what you would see in just any, any old horror movie. But again, it's Catherine Bigelow, so it is not just gratuitous or exploitative. It does have a lot of purpose to it, and the gore looks good. It doesn't it doesn't try to go over the top. The one scene with Bill Paxton being all bloodied and, you know, kind of having like the half of his face ripped off. Uh, is spectacular, and that's probably the most grotesque scene in the movie. The scene in the bar is certainly violent and bloody, um, but that one is where, you know, the first time you see him, he's kind of pulling himself up the side of a truck, and you, you see what's happened, and you you have to laugh, because you're just like, oh my god, <laughs> oh my god, like, what? This is insane. And it still looks good. All these movies are a little bit older. And I have to say that I have seen all of them recently. And they all still hold up. American Psycho, of course, because honestly, it doesn't do anything. There's nothing in American Psycho that's going to get dated. It already came out, you know, when it came out, it was a scene from the 80s. So it was already going to have that quality. It's not going to be... It's not going to be dated by the things that we normally look for, like technology or fashion, because it was already a period piece, which feels weird to say. But now that the 80s were so long ago, uh, that feels appropriate. And for Trouble Every Day, it doesn't uh, try to do anything that, you know, it uses physical and practical effects, and it doesn't have anything that we can really point to and be like, okay, that looks like a blood effect from the early 2000s, you know, it's, it looks like corn syrup and red food dye, you know, it's classic, gotta go with what works, if we perfect it in the 70s, why do anything else? But Near Dark definitely still looks very, very good, and it is just a lot of makeup, and it is, um, you know, a lot of, uh, of uh, latex, like throats being ripped, that kind of stuff. So it does, it is the, the height of practical effects. The 80s had really, that's really what the 80s had going for it. So I would say Near Dark might be my favorite Catherine Bigelow movie. It's so hard to say, because as soon as I say that, I'm like, you bitch, you're lying. You watch Point Break all the time, but it's different. <laughs> That's different. I watch Point Break and, you know, it, it's... I watch anything that fetishizes California all the time. This one is... It, it's a vampire western, so it was two things. When I saw it, it was two things that I loved very, very much. So, I'll have to say it's my favorite Catherine Bigelow movie. The final movie 
is not so much a horror movie, but still one that people might not necessarily think a woman director had the chops to handle. Uh, I'm talking about Destroyer, which came out last year. I actually didn't see it till this year, and I did really enjoy it. I spent my whole life scrapping, jealous, hungry, scared. I want to find something decent, something good. You can be better than me. I am lukewarm on Nicole Kidman, but thought she did fantastic in it. And uh, it apparently made me fall in love with Sebastian Stan, which was, you know, something I didn't realize until I started having dreams about him. But sure, he's, he's great in it. Everyone's great in it. But it was directed by Karen Kusama. And she also directed Jennifer's Body, which is a movie I initially wrote off and then uh, later realized I enjoyed quite a bit. But Destroyer is about two people working undercover uh, in this sort of violent gang and what happens when, you know, the things go very wrong with, you know, the gang is doing a bank robbery and it sort of, it gets filled in as the movie goes, but you know that someone died and you know that uh, Sebastian Stan's character, Chris, was killed and you sort of, these things start to fill in as to how it led up to that and why it's also such a good movie as far as, uh, you know, being helmed by a woman is that Nicole Kidman's character is you know, the whole movie uh, is pushing to get answers to things that people don't want to give her. And she looks terrible, <laughs> which is a very funny thing to say. But on purpose, you know, she really... it it You look at her and you can't even, for a minute, you don't even realize it's her. Then they have these flashbacks and she looks beautiful again. But... She really does sort of embody this drained, drained, broken human. And there are a couple of scenes, uh, one that I think is in the running for saddest hand job of 2019. Uh, we <laughs> That was cut from our Academy Awards uh, categories. I there was a bunch of movies in 2018 that had like really sad hand jobs, but nobody else wanted to vote on it. So you know what? 2019 is going to be the the year of the sad hand job. But it is really, really. Uh, it's not a flawless movie. There's definitely it does some things that feel kind of unnecessary, and part of that has to do with the cyclical story. I think it could have been told. You know, if it could have been told in flashback, that would have been fine. It could have been told, you know, linearly, it would have been fine. They kind of do a little bit of a twisty, twisty circular thing to make it kind of a reveal at the end, which was unnecessary because we get so invested in these characters and we do get so invested in the story and we do really want to see justice for the character of Chris and the, you know, the other 
character that gets killed during this bank robbery. So I think that it's uh, it's still such a very powerful movie, and the performances in it are so great, which is something that I don't think directors get enough credit for. On the same note, when a performance is terrible, I think directors also don't get the blame. So, you know, it goes hand in hand. But when there are these outrageous performances, something, some credit has to be given to the director. They they certainly have to help pull these these moments out of the actors. And this is a movie from beginning to end that's filled with great performances. If nothing else, if I'm certainly someone who would watch a movie strictly for a performance, I have. In fact, people have been like, well, it's, the movie's not great, but like, this person's performance was amazing. That's great. That sounds, I'll sit there and watch it. I, you know, watch Split for that reason. <laughs> so, and this is a movie that even if you don't like it, even if you don't, you, like, don't really like the subject matter, I would say watch it just for the performances, because all the performances are truly amazing. Hello. Welcome to my segment. Dan here. I am going to talk this episode about one film, and, you know, I'm not going to dive into it analytically, too much. It's kind of an anomaly because we're doing women-directed films, and this film is the only film from this director. Her name is Carol Frank. In 1982, she was the assistant to director on The Slumber Party Massacre. The basketball team is planning a party. A slumber party to bare their souls. All the girls are coming, except Mary and Linda. And they won't be missed. The party begins at 8 o'clock. It's a slumber party for old time's sake. Love it, too. Do you think I'm getting better? But be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. pizza i feel better already really i do that film was directed by amy holden jones and written by rita may brown um and you've probably seen that film if you are a slasher fan it is one of the go-to you know point at this movie when people are asking about you know women directed horror films of the 80s um 82 is still kind of early ish in that slasher period and there's a lot of debate around that film and whether or not it is actually satirizing the slasher genre or if it was a script by Rita Mae Brown that was very specifically satirizing the genre and then it just kind of became an example of the genre. Um, I think it's somewhere in between. I think you can really see in that movie some obvious points that it is, you know, kind of making. 
Um, a lot of people point to the nudity in that film, which feels very like, I guess that we have to do this because Roger Corman said so. So here's the most bland kind of attempt to f- check that box. And in, it, in and of itself is kind of commenting on, you know, having to have that in there. I think Carol Frank went from working on that film to later in the 80s, 1986, Sorority House Massacre is released. Sorority House Massacre. After a weekend with us, you're going to want to join this sorority. Am I crazy? Oh, God. It's him. That's him. That's the guy from my dream. What's the plan here, buddy? You got to get reason behind Sorority House Massacre, a slash course in absolute terror. Uh, This is a movie that I remember specifically from the rental store, from the VHS box. It had a very kind of, I don't want to say iconic cover, but it had, you know, a cover that stood out when you were at the store. You know, it kind of popped off the shelf a little bit. It also helped for me that it was a Warner home video release. And when I was younger, I was very obsessed with those VHS boxes because they had such long write-ups on the back. Um, I, I'm going to read some of this write-up. And and the reason why I was so obsessed with these write-ups is the way they were written uh, is so fascinating to me. They're so overwritten in the best way. So here's uh, some of the back of the VHS for Sorority House Massacre. The women of Theta Omega Theta think their sorority is a cut above the rest, and a knife-wielding maniac is soon going to prove them right. That's bad news for the tempting Thetas, but good news for horror fans, because here's a gore-filled, ever-say-die shocker sorority house massacre. Ever-say-die? What? Like, okay. Uh, Think college tests are tough? The Thetas are about to take a final exam where the stakes are not pass-fail, but live-die. Cheating is allowed. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And aficionados of fright will be glad to learn that Sorority House Massacre delivers all the right answers to a demanding checklist of macabre delights. It provides as many twisted tricks and treats as Halloween, unravels as much bad luck as a whole month of Friday the 13th, and scares up enough bad dreams to give permanent insomnia to Freddy and the gang who tossed and turned through a nightmare in Elm Street. Like, holy shit, the alliteration and the way that these these like sentences go on, I there's just something about these releases that... I love so much. It goes on to talk a little bit about the plot and then kind of ends up with, you know, calling Sorority House Massacre a slash course in terror. But there was just something about these releases that I found so fascinating. Um, And it's kind of taken me off course a little bit here. So I'll get right back on course um, when we talk about the movie itself, Sorority House Massacre. So Carol Frank, I mentioned, she directed this film. And this is one that I put off for a really long time because growing up online reading reviews in the world of b-movies and b-movie websites and b-movie um link sharing and all these things on the internet when i was younger it was super dude heavy i always heard sorority house massacre it's boring sorority house massacre it's nothing special you know you're not gonna remember it it's super forgettable and so i didn't watch this movie until about 2016 um And, you know, again, that write-up, how is it ever going to live up to such intense claims? It's going to 
kill Freddy if he watches this movie. Okay, <laughs> um, sure. But I have to say, this movie's great, and everybody is so wrong about it. This feels kind of like a shot on video movie, um, but it does have kind of high production value, and there's a lot of dream sequences in this film. So there's a lot of stylish direction in the way that the movie you know, jumps from dream sequences to reality and back to dream sequences. It's actually very impressively directed. And I don't understand how I went so long listening to people saying that this movie's boring. Like, I mean, just on a visual level, this has way more flair than your average bargain barrel slasher. If you think this movie is just whatever, it's the same as every other slasher, I don't think you're watching it with your eyes open. But yeah, the, the score and the pace of the movie, it has that kind of dreamlike thing I was talking about earlier. And this one in particular really feels like it's referencing the tropes of the genre in 86. Um, I think they spell it out a little bit more, uh, but there's definitely more evidence in this movie that they're trying to say something than even something like the aforementioned Slumber Party Massacre, where where it was originally intended as, you know, a spoof or a, a satire of the genre. But yeah, so the murders in this movie, you know, I think one of the reasons why it always was passed over by the kind of people that were reviewing movies, the kind of dudes that were re reviewing movies, is because it's not insanely gory. And I think a lot of times I go back to these movies that dudes were like, oh, that movie boring, snooze fest. It's like because the gore isn't insane it's not like oh shit somebody got murdered the guts flew everywhere like no this movie when somebody gets killed it's blunt it's forceful it's freaky the murderer is seen plain as day throughout the whole film um there's no kind of whodunit involved it's just this dude he breaks out he goes to a hunting store gets a knife and that's it he just starts burying it in the chests of people. And it's shocking and really effective. You don't expect that from these movies. You expect the goofy kills. Um, you know, you expect the camp. And the camp is here for sure. Like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's super silly. But I just found that, you know, compared to other movies of this era, from a visual perspective, from a script perspective, um, it's, it's a way above average. If you're only coming to Sorority House Massacre for... Um, extremely violent murders or tons of nudity, you might be let down that it's not as over-the-top wild as other slashers of the era. But I think if you are somebody who is looking for the hidden gems and you're looking for the movies that have been overlooked, I think Sorority House Massacre is one that I really think deserves another look. And I think it's really a letdown that Carol Frank wasn't or I'm not going to say wasn't able because I didn't, I don't, I haven't done enough research to know why she stopped doing movies, but I think I want to see more from Carol Frank. I wish I could have seen what would she have done next after Sorority House Massacre? Because with, you know, Amy Holden Jones, we did get to see some other films from her and she went on to do some really cool stuff. Her film from 1996, The Rich Man's Wife, is actually a really good take on that 90s thriller from the female perspective um, and from a female director writer so actually maybe you want to check that one out after you see sorority house massacre be maybe a fun double feature but yeah sorority house massacre is worth a look it's got a tight 78 minute runtime so you know that's something that i love when it comes to b movies when it comes to slasher movies so for me sorority house massacre 1986 underrated entirely um overlooked for sure and i would have loved to see more from carol frank uh as a director and a writer. 
And if you have seen Slumber Party Massacre, you'll notice there is a scene in, in Sorority House Massacre where they're watching Slumber Party Massacre on the TV, a wink to her work on that film. Um, but yeah, Carol Frank is an unheralded voice in slasher cinema, and you know, I think her movie deserves to be seen. So check out Sorority House Massacre. Let me know what you think. If you do watch it, I would love to hear your feedback. Um, and on to the rest of this episode of Notes from the Back Row. So, Carlo here, and I'm looking at my letterbox at my liked movies for, like, looking for movies directed by women, and I'm feeling a little embarrassed about how the cake is not split evenly at all. Uh, I'm not sure why I should be feeling embarrassed about this, because it's not like I'm looking at the directors before I'm picking a movie to watch, because I will watch anything as long as it's, like, showing me something that defies the rules of mainstream movie making, you know, like something that surprises me. Yeah, oof, what a sausage fest. Um, which I guess it says a lot about the state of filmmaking in previous decades, uh, now still even, but even more so uh, like the decades I'm sourcing from, like especially like 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, it's not like there weren't any female directors, but they were definitely in the minority. And uh, whenever they got their shot at directing, they basically were only allowed one fuck up. Um, there's a lot of examples of this. Like, for example, you've got Elaine May, who had some really excellent movies in the 70s, such as The Heartbreak Kid, starring Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepard. You've got a new leaf with herself, uh, Elaine May, and Walter Matthau. Uh, but then she made Ishtar, which it's still considered one of the worst movies ever by a lot of people. I've yet to see it, but I know from Jenna she's seen it, and she's even gone on the show before saying it is anything but the worst movie ever. Um, there just used to be, and there still is, too much uh, scrutiny towards women in the director's seat. But since my expertise is more in the movies of the past, I figured I'd talk about some female directors, uh, directresses? I feel like that should be its own word, or its director even gender-specific word. Probably not. Whatever. Uh, I'm rambling. Anyway, one of the first directors that comes to mind uh, is Rachel Talalay. Now, uh, Talalay got her start working on the Nightmare on Elm Street movies as a visual effects person. She's a big fan of John Waters movies and even worked as a producer on some of them, uh, such as Hairspray and Crybaby. And then by the time the Freddy Krueger money well had started running dry uh, towards the late 80s, they tried to like go for broke and say like, okay, the sixth entry in the franchise is going to be the last one. Freddy's gonna die in this one and that'll be that and people will want to come and see that. So they offered a seat, director's seat, to Rachel Talalay, uh, who'd be making her debut as a director. But since she had so much experience with the Nightmare on Elm Street series, they figured she would make a pretty good fit. Freddy's back in an all-new horrifying film. The terror is just beginning. Freddy's dead. The final nightmare. The Madman. Yeah. Great to be back in business. You love to hate. 
returns for his most spectacular nightmare. But Freddy's worst nightmare is his own flesh and blood. You can't be my father. No respect. Who will stop him dead? Happy Father's Day. In his dreams. Hey, Spence. Let's trip out. Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Now, I've always liked Freddy's Dead a whole lot, even as a kid, and I've rewatched it recently, and heck, I even wrote an entire article saying how people are, to this day, still too harsh on it, not giving it enough credit for taking a different approach than part four and five, which kind of like uh, just continued on from part three. Um, even a different approach than, than any other movie in that series, really. Uh, anyway, so Talalay won't really get kicked out of Hollywood just yet, based on uh, how people felt about Freddy's Dead. Because we're talking about B-movies and horror movies specifically, there's a lot more leeway in generally. It's the kind of place where anything goes, really, in terms of breaking the rules of not just movies, but also good taste. Uh, she go on to direct another horror movie in 1993 called Ghost in the Machine. We're losing him. He's dying. Come on. Last night, a killer died. Where the hell did that go? His body was laid to rest. But his soul... That's impossible. ...has come online. This is gonna be fun, Terry. Who is this? I'm killing your friends. Looks like there was someone else in there with us. The killer died in this hospital. And it was plugged into your computer. Something is coming after my son and my friends. There's no way anyone can kill somebody with a computer. Again, Ghost in the Machine is a movie that doesn't really get its dues, even in the horror community. Uh, you'd have to look around a little for people who go to bat for it. Uh, but again, it's a pretty expertly shot movie with a good sense of fun. And, you know, I'm always a fan of high concept techno thrillers uh, like this one there's a, a serial killer who basically becomes like a computer virus if I'm remembering correctly it's, it's actually it's more like in gremlins 2 when that one gremlin becomes electricity or something and in this too it just travels uh, via phone lines showing up in people's electronic calendars on their computers rigging phone calls and basically anything electricity power is fair game which makes this Pretty entertaining, like no-holds-barred piece of schlock with super crappy computer effects while super dated. Um, it's fun to look at, though. Uh, but then the follow-up to that in Talalay's career would be Tank Girl. The odds of survival are a thousand to one. And that's just the way she likes it. My, my. 
talented, isn't she? Hi! Feeling a little inadequate? She'll be fun to break. I like things. Lori Petty. Did I hurt you yet? Ice tea. Turn this boat around, or you're gonna get us all killed. And Malcolm McDowell. Just how many of my men did you kill? United Artists Pictures presents. Just say, I won. I won. Tank Girl. What's it like knowing you're about to die? You don't! I don't know, it, it might have tanked her career as well a little as, you know, for directing theatrical releases at least. Now, I haven't seen Tank Girl since it came out and again I'm sure it's one of those movies that people thought at the time was the worst movie of all time. Which, I mean, I know almost for sure, worst case scenario, it's just going to be middling. Um, but the point is that after Tank Girl, Tele will kind of disappear from the Hollywood spotlight to just do TV movies and this isn't a knock against TV mo movies obviously but unless that shit's on Netflix nowadays there's just not the same kind of exposure which I'm like sure maybe you don't necessarily go for big exposure but I do feel like she had enough talent to inspire other female directors so it's a shame it wasn't meant to be or I should say it's a shame she wasn't given the same kind of support to help a break up the boys club, you know? Anyway, that's Rachel Talalay. One other director I definitely wanted to talk about um, when this topic came to me. It's probably one of the first names that came to me when the gang proposed this topic for a new podcast. Uh, a director by the name of Tina Hirsch. Uh, you're probably thinking who? And that's because Tina Hirsch directed only one movie and it's the little piece of shit that could called Munchies. And then, one day... Did you hear something? Something odd appeared. Oh, this is incredible. Exactly what they are is uncertain. I'm South American cockroach dad, I'm out of here. Their origins are somewhat hazy. It's an alien. Maybe an illegal alien. And while their manner can be quite charming... He's so cute. Can't we take him out of the bag now? Their habits can be a little bizarre. <laughs> Paul, not so rough. I haven't done anything yet. Gross! <laughs> <laughs> but you'd better treat them right. You're not laughing anymore, are you, pal? Because they're not necessarily nuts. Now, you might be able to tell from the title, uh, but just so you don't go thinking this is a stoner movie, even though I can imagine a lot of people saw this movie while high, uh, Munchies is a movie about little creatures in the vein of Gremlins. And it's not just in the vein of Gremlins, it's very specifically a movie made because of the success of Gremlins. And because Roger Corman basically asked Tina Hirsch, who worked as a, an editor, not only on Roger Corman movies, such as Death Race 2000, but also on Joe Dante's Gremlins. Specifically asked her, make a movie like Gremlins. Um, Joe Dante, of course, director of Gremlins, Gremlins, got a start working under Roger Corman, so they all kind of knew each other, really. Tina Hirsch, since then, hasn't directed anything. She has been elected 
to membership in the American Cinema Editor Society. And she was apparently the first female president of this society. And she still serves on the board of the ACE, has done so for more than two decades. So uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, she's obviously still around, but based on the flubbish, if that's even a word, nature of Munchies, she never really got another shot at directing, which, okay, Munchies isn't a great movie, but it was never aiming to be great. It was just a cash-in on Gremlins. And maybe this is just me, but that kind of stupid little creature movie with, like, sass-talking garbage puppets, it's just a little endearing to me. Uh, okay, sure, that's nostalgia speaking now. But even at the time when people like Charles Band, heck, even now, Charles Band is creating little creature movies for seemingly no one but a bunch of masochistic horror nerds. Whereas Munchies is way better than, I don't know, Evil Bong 666 and all that other uh, cheap chunk. So I don't really know what happened there. I mean, maybe Tina Hirsch was like, if this is the kind of movies I'm being offered to direct, hard pass. Because Roger Corman isn't the kind of producer who cares if you make a bad movie, as long as it makes its money back, I guess. And going off the budget of Munchies, uh, I actually don't know what the budget is, but I can't imagine it had been much. Um, you kind of have to assume it made its money back. Um, some other people that come to mind, I love watching Hong Kong movies, and there is a, a female director called Teresa Wusan who directed the Iron Angels trilogy. Um, which are like some great A kitchen sink action trash in the Girls with Guns genre, which I've talked about before on the site. Uh, there are plenty of on-screen examples of leading ladies in China, and well, not necessarily mainland China, but Hong Kong and Taiwan. But she's one of the very few who did it behind the camera. You've also got Patricia Birch, uh, who is kind of a legendary dance choreographer and theater director. But in the world of directing feature films, her only accolade is Grease 2. And look, I don't care who knows, but I kind of love Grease 2. And I definitely prefer it over Grease 1. Because I just have no time for Travolta and Olivia Newton-John in that movie. They're dumbasses. And I don't know, Michelle Pfeiffer in Grease 2, she's not a dumbass. She's, she's strong, independent, all that junk. And... The songs in Greece too, like at the same time they're worse, but on a level that works for me because they're less, um, I don't know, rapey. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like the way Greece starts, it's just all, did she put up a fight? Dude, fuck off at that shit. <laughs> Meanwhile in Greece too, maybe there's, maybe there is shit like that. I don't really remember, but at least it doesn't start off like that, setting the tone. Um, well, whatever, I've, I've gone way off track here, talking about Crease of all things. So yeah, in closing, I just want to say, I wish there had been more female directors and female lead mainstream action movies, because based on the shit I grew up on, like my all-time letterbox stats, they're just the real circle jerk of dudes. That's it for this episode. Don't forget, 
follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all of the social medias at Back Row Cine Blog on all of those platforms. Go to back-row.com. You can find the links to the social platforms there. Our email is also listed there. You'll find great articles by all of the people that you have heard here today. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time in the back row. Goodbye. Goodbye.